Welcome to the Harmony of Interest series, where we will explore ideas that positively shape our world. My name is Evan Papp, and I'm the executive producer for Empathy Media Lab that publishes content on labor, political economy, art, and culture. And we are a proud member of the Radio Labor Podcast Network. I'm very excited to talk to Professor Peter Ratcliffe. Peter's a retired professor of history at McAllister College in St. Paul, Minnesota, specializing in United States labor, immigration, and African-American history. He's the author of Black Labor in Richmond, Virginia, 1865 to 1890, and Hard Pressed in the Heartland, The Hormel Strike and the Future of the Labor Movement. In October 2017, the Walter Ruther Library and the North American Labor History Conference gave him the Nat Weinberg Award for Lifetime Achievement in Labor History. Uh, Peter is also the co-executive director of Eastside Freedom Library, which has become a pillar of organizing and culture in the Twin Cities with a mission to inspire solidarity, advocate for justice, and work towards equity, equity for all. Uh, Professor, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Evan, but please just call me Peter. <laughs> Peter, could you talk a bit about how you became interested in labor history? Well, I think that um, it started when I was in high school uh, in New London, Connecticut, um, in the mid to late 1960s, and uh, was touched by the struggle of the California United Farm Workers Union, even though I was completely on the other end of the country, and very moved by their struggle and their presence uh, at uh, supermarkets urging consumers to boycott grapes and boycott lettuce. Um, I got a crash course in the Taft-Hartley Act uh, when I offered to help uh, picket uh, supermarkets and organizers told me, now you can't tell people not to go in the store. If you tell them not to go in the store, uh, that will be an illegal secondary boycott under the terms of the Taft-Hartley Act. And, and as a 15 year old, I said, well, wouldn't it be more powerful if people didn't go in the store? And, and they said, oh, you can't, you can't say that. Um, and so I started to get interested. It was the era of the Vietnam War and the civil rights movement. I remember exactly where I was when we heard that Dr. King had been assassinated in the spring of 1968. Um, and I, I went off to college um, in the fall of 1969 with two questions. One was, uh, uh, is the war in Vietnam an accident or a natural outgrowth of American society? And the second question was, have we in fact transcended our racist roots? Um, and I like to tell, used to tell my students and tell others um, that it took me about a semester to answer both of those questions. And then the question became, now that I had an answer, what was I going to do about it? And I, I'd like to think that I've spent the rest of my life uh, trying to figure out what to do about it, uh, whether it was to become a, a labor historian and, and learn about the role that the working class had played in the shaping of this country and the shaping of the world. Um, and then as a teacher to inspire students to open their eyes uh, to the working class, the America's best kept secret in, in most academic courses. Um, and then leaving academia uh, seven years ago to start the Eastside Freedom Library and 
to try to bring these issues and bring these answers uh, into communities, particularly um, immigrant or immigrant descended working class communities here in St. Paul. Um, so um, I do say sometimes that some of the people I went to college with in the early 1970s left college to become factory workers and organizers. But as a middle-class Jewish boy, I decided to go to graduate school um, and study organizers and unions and, and the working class. Uh, I took the slightly easier way out. I really appreciate you didn't stay in the, uh, the academic ivory tower that so many professors can oftentimes find themselves in, but to use the knowledge and the teachings uh, with the students to actually put that into action. Well, I'm, I'm very proud, Evan, of the work that my students have done, uh, students who are and have been union organizers, community organizers, uh, anti-racist activists. Um, I'm, I'm very, very fortunate that I have a large network of former students who stay in touch with me. Um, I like to think that I was produced by really wonderful mentors um, and they taught me how to be a teacher and a mentor. Um, and I have carried on their uh, banner in the work that I've been able to do. So I don't think that the, the academy has to be an ivory tower in and of itself. Um, I think it's possible to do a lot of good work there. Um, but I'm really thankful that I'm doing work directly in the community now. And one of your mentors was David Montgomery. And I believe that there's, um, at least in the academic circles, there's this concept of new labor history. And uh, could you talk just a, a little bit, uh, you know, at the 30,000 foot level for people who may not know uh, th this tension, I guess. Well, the, the origins of labor history lay in economics um, and people who focused on uh, unions as institutions, and particularly the practices of collective bargaining, um, and the birthplace of that labor history in the early 20th century was the University of Wisconsin at Madison, people like Selig Perlman and John R. Commons. Um, but in the 60s, uh, the study of American history was challenged and transformed, uh, first by African-American historians, uh, secondly, by women's historians, thirdly, by immigration historians. And by the late 60s, early 70s, those of us who were drawn to the study of the working class were carrying the influence of African-American history, women's history, immigration history. And so we became historians of the working class, um, not historians of unions per se. And uh, David Montgomery was a marvelous role model. Um, he also taught us um, that if we were going to study labor history, we didn't only have to spend time in the archives, but we also had to spend time on picket lines um, and in union halls. And I think that our whole cohort that studied with David over the course of the 70s uh, really carried that into the work that we do. And it then affects the way we tell uh, the stories, that we make sure that our work is accessible, readable. Um, you mentioned my book on the Hormel strike. Um, 
I chose to write that book without footnotes, um, not because uh, I wanted to uh, create alternative facts, um, but because I wanted working class people to pick the book up, thumb through it, see that it wasn't full of footnotes and say, oh, I could read this. Um, and hopefully uh, they could and can. So speaking about that book, uh, Hard Pressed in the Heartland, the Hormel Strike and the Future of the Labor Movement, uh, which, quote, tells the heartbreaking but empowering story of a spirited local union trying to resist management's drive for concessions while fending off a conservative national, national union leadership unwilling to support its own members, unquote. Could you talk about this strike, lessons learned, and what your role was in? You, you actually had a role in it as well. Yeah. Um, part of what was so inspiring about the Hormel strike was the solidarity that uh, they inspired in workers around the country, and in fact, in 19 countries outside the United States. Um, and when people saw, as, as the macroeconomy globally was turning towards neoliberalism, uh, turning towards the Reagan-Thatcher vision of, of the way uh, things supposedly would trickle down, but, but really never did, um, here was a group of workers who stood up uh, and fought back and asked other workers uh, to stand with them. Um, in the midst of the struggle, the union created what they called an adopt-a-family program. And every single striker's family, 1,750 families, were adopted by a local union somewhere in the United States. And that local union committed to paying their bills, their mortgage, their car payments, their kids' college bills, that they would make that worker whole for the duration of the strike. Because the union, the national union itself was, was paying $45 a week in, in strike benefits. So as the metropolitan area closest uh, to Austin, Minnesota, which is a hundred miles away from the Twin Cities, um, activists here felt um, that we were really responsible to be role models in, in how to organize solidarity. So we started a solidarity committee uh, before the strike actually began in, in August of 1985. And, um, <laughs> and I was at a meeting where someone said, well, we need a chairperson. And someone else, oh, let's make the college professor the chairperson. Um, and I was not in a position to say no. And I ended up as the chairperson of the Solidarity Committee, which was a profoundly um, important experience in, in my life. I'm still in touch with people uh, 35 years later um, who I met during that struggle. What were some of the outlines of the demands of the workers at this time and what was management and doing and, and what, what was this company Hormel uh, producing as well? So this was a meat and pork uh, company. Uh, they, were, they had been created by the Hormel family in Austin, Minnesota in the 1890s. Uh, this had been their home uh, plant. Um, and like, you know, any number of scholars tell us about how capitalism usually operates, 
um, that they allowed the plant to be run into the ground rather than making investments uh, along the way. And so in the mid 1970s, um, they announced that the plant was hope hopelessly decrepit um, and they were gonna tear it down. And they came to the city government, the state government and the local union. And they said, um, we're gonna tear this plant down. We're gonna build a new plant. We could build it anywhere we want. Uh, what will you give us to build it in the, in the very community where the company had grown up and prospered? And um, so uh, the state government said, uh, we'll, we'll build uh, entrance and exit ramps off of the interstate highway to facilitate your moving hogs and cattle and product. Uh, the city government said, we'll, we'll give you a 10 year forgiveness on property taxes. Uh, and the local union said, uh, we'll give you a seven year wage freeze. Um, and that was that the deal was struck in 1977. Uh, and when the new plant opened in 1984, um, workers in the plant were shocked that instead of making them whole after a seven year wage cut or wage freeze. Um, instead, the company now said, we want a 23% wage cut, uh, that we've been through a reorganization in the meat processing industry. Uh, the big companies, Armour, Wilson, Swift, have gone out of business and, and have been bought by conglomerates. They've cut wages and benefits down. Uh, we want you to take a cut. Um, and at the same time, when the workers uh, entered the new plant, uh, they discovered that it was a nightmare, uh, that work had been reorganized and sped up. Uh, there were mechanical sharpeners uh, instead of workers learning how to sharpen their own knives. There was an epidemic of carpal tunnel. Uh, workers were being maimed and, and made miserable and for 23% less uh, pay. Uh, and so uh, they elected a new union, local union leadership, people who came out of the Vietnam era generation, um, people who had lived all their lives in Austin. Um, and they stood up and said, um, we're not gonna take it. Um, and their national union uh, came in and said, we have a strategy it's called uh, the controlled retreat. And uh, the local union <laughs> said, you know, it doesn't feel very controlled. We don't believe a retreat is in order. And you ought to get your ass in here and try to work these jobs uh, under the conditions in, in which we're working. And so when the extended contract expired, um, the union went on strike. Uh, and they called on the national union as the contract would have allowed them to do, to pull out the workforces in seven other unionized hormone plants uh, in Atlanta, Georgia, Dallas, Texas, Fremont, Nebraska, Ottumwa, Iowa. Um, and the union actually sent pickets uh, to those plants. And the national union ordered their members to cross the picket line um, in those other cities, um, in places, hundreds of workers were fired 
uh, for refusing to cross the picket line. Um, and, and this created this enormous, uh, at the time, um, attention to, to what was going on. And of course, you know, this was on the heels of the air traffic controllers strike in the summer of 1981 and President Reagan uh, firing and replacing 1400 air traffic controllers. So there was an awareness that in the 80s, there was this battle over what direction uh, the American political economy and class relations in the United States were gonna go in. And union leadership, were they corrupt or just inept or just spineless and weak and unable to, to fight? Because I also understand that they took a new tact and strategy to, instead of going after Hormel, they were going after the banks of Hormel and like the local uh, credit unions and, and things like that, that were doing business for, with Hormel as like almost well, a secondary attack. Yeah, one of the things the local union did was they, they looked around. These were, in many cases, college-educated uh, people who living in their hometown ended up working in the packing plant. Um, and they looked around and they saw there was this guy, Ray Rogers, uh, who had led the Farah boycott for the Amalgamated Clothing and Textile Workers Union in the late 70s um, that had a, an operation called Corporate Campaign, uh, which was a strategy-based uh, program. And they reached out to Ray and Ray did a kind of uh, microeconomic research on the company and said, well, they have all these interlocks uh, with financial institutions. You know, this is before people like David Harvey would teach us that, uh, that the economy had shifted to fire insurance and real estate as, as driving mechanisms. And, and Ray said, you know, we got to look at these banks and financial institutions. They have people on the Hormel board. Hormel has people on their board. Let's make them pay a price for the policies that they're promoting. Now, ironically, the Taft-Hartley Act would get dusted off again, um, and the union would be told that picketing the bank, putting pressure on the bank, was an illegal secondary boycott uh, under Taft-Hartley. I mean, we all got a crash course in what are the limits of the rights that that workers have when they're struggling over their pay and working conditions. And you almost Much got fired from that, uh, as I understand, with a board member on the university uh, who is also connected with. Well, uh, I was lucky that the yeah. college president stood up for me. I didn't have tenure yet. And uh, it turned out that the chair of First Bank, who also sat on the board of Hormel and that was a target of the boycott, uh, happened to sit on the board of trustees of McAllister College. And he suggested that they should get rid of me. And uh, President Bob Gavin, whom I had plenty of disagreements with, but he believed in something called academic freedom and, and he actually stood up for it. Um, I think we were very frustrated that the leadership of unions, um, for the most part, uh, stayed away. Um, we met amazing people like Jerry Tucker, uh, who was leading the New Directions Movement in the United Auto Workers Union, Tony Mazaki, who had led the Occupational Safety and Health Movement um, in the Oil, Chemical, and Atomic Workers, and, and later would initiate the Labor Party. 
Um, there were uh, Vic, Victor Ruther, uh, the brother of Walter Ruther, the, the first president of the United Auto Workers. Um, these were all people who came to Austin, who came to the Twin Cities, um, who understood uh, class relations and, and the place of unions within a larger calculation of class relations. But the leaders of the Minnesota AFL-CIO, the, the leaders of the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, um, most of these unions um, said that there was no option but to take the to take, take the concessions and come back to fight another day. Um, and of course, um, the, the, the slope has continued uh, to slide downward. So, you know, in, in the late 50s, 35% of American workers belong to unions. Uh, today, less than 10% of American workers belong to unions. Yeah, I think okay. on the in the private sector it's it's almost six, and in the public, right. oh, it's thirty percent or something around there. But that's a part of um, the plan of Mitch McConnell to not allow the states to be properly funded. I think is a backdoor way to break the the public sector unions. Well, there have been really a series of judicial and legislative and executive branch measures, whether it was Scott Walker in Wisconsin or uh, the Janus decision of the Supreme Court. Um, public employees have a target on their backs, um, carrying the mantle of what's left of the labor movement. Um, it's, it's very important that people pay attention uh, to what public employees are facing today. And as we're talking today, Evan, as teachers in Chicago, in St. Paul, in Minneapolis and other communities, as teachers are saying, it's unsafe to order us back to school, um, you know, we're, we're not gonna go along with those decisions. And um, we don't know in this moment what's gonna happen. And I like this analogy where we've been in this Reagan arena for the last 40 years and mm -hmm. we're leaving that arena and we're going into a, a, new, a new arena, I guess. And the question is, what is this new arena gonna be? What are we building right now? Are we building a, a prison even worse than the last arena? Or are we gonna build something that is, is going to liberate us. And the more I look at the question of class consciousness and interracial solidarity, I was really happy to come across your work while editing Labor History Today for an interview you did with Steve Zeltzer of Workweek Radio. And you also did another interview with Race Capital Podcast on the subject of Confederate monuments in Richmond. And you shared a great deal of knowledge from your book, Black Labor in Richmond, Virginia, 1865 to 1890 where you talk a lot about racial solidarity and you talk a lot about this dynamic between the city hall construction and the outgrowth of a lot of these Confederate monuments that were built in the 1890s. And of course, reconstruction was this idea that Lincoln and a lot of the radical Republicans were putting into place to, to try to industrialize the South and bring about rights to all workers instead of the race to the bottom idea. Lincoln obviously gets assassinated six, seven days after the end of the war and is never able to actually implement his reconstruction. And yet at the same time, the Freedmen Bureau was there for a little while. Ulysses S. Grant created uh, the actual Department of Justice to fight against the Ku Klux Klan and things like that. But what a lot of people don't understand is the number of elected 
black legislators and the amount of interracial solidarity. So could you talk a little bit about um, the scene setter of this, this building and, and then the monuments uh, coming up as a reactionary element of, of reconstruction? Well, you've opened the door, Evan, by, by mentioning Lincoln. And, um, and I, I wanna say that the, the end of the Civil War was when the Union Army marched into Richmond in April of 1865, a, a week before Lincoln would be assassinated. Lincoln himself uh, was, was ushered into the city, leading the Union Army in April of 1865 was the Massachusetts 54th, uh, a black battalion of the Union Army. Um, in in uh, Leon Litwack's book, Been in the Storm So Long, Litwack tells the story that as the Massachusetts 54th march into Richmond, the first place they stop is a place called Lumpkin's Slave Jail. And there are enslaved men and women in that building who were about to be put on the auction block and, and sold to New Orleans. And, uh, and they begin to chant, slavery chained, unbroke at last, unbroke at last, gonna praise God till I'm free. And, the, and, and they open the doors of the jail and let them out. And, and so this hugely symbolic gesture, the Confederate government under the leadership of Jefferson Davis hightails it out of the city just as the Union Army is marching in and they set fire to the main business district, which includes burning down the Richmond City Hall. That's April, 1865. In the 1880s, an ideology begins to sweep the South called the New South. This, it's so interesting that the New South is the ideology before the lost cause. And I, I wanna call out David Blight and his brilliant op-ed in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago about the myth of the lost cause. So the New South is, is the ideology and the New South is gonna be modern and industrial and Richmond with its tobacco factories and iron mills and flour mills is the center of the new South. And then the businessmen say, whoa, but we don't have a city hall. We're, the city government meets in crappy rental space. If we're gonna be the capital, not just of, we were the capital of the Confederacy, now we're gonna be the capital of the new South. We need a new city hall. And in the spring of 1886, the Richmond City Council begins to weigh proposals for how will they build a new city hall. And they are still operating with an ideology that says like Ronald Reagan, like Donald Trump, the, the government that costs the least is the government that does the best. And so we wanna scab this work out. We want it done as cheaply as possible. We're gonna put it out for bid. Meanwhile, since the early 1880s, African-American and white workers have been organizing in this amazing organization called the Noble and Holy Order of the Knights of Labor. And, and they're organizing racially separate locals. There are colored locals and white locals. 
but they meet together, they work together, they develop a proposal and a petition signed by more than 7,000 people that says a city hall should be an embodiment of a community. We think our city hall should be built out of local materials, built by local workers, employed on the eight hour day, paid a living wage. And we think that so-called colored workers should have access to skilled jobs on this project. And they bring the petition to the city council and the city council says in a term that Ronald Reagan would have felt very comfortable with, we would be fiscally irresponsible if we adopted a plan like this. And the Knights of Labor leaders said, then we're gonna run for your jobs. We're gonna take over this city council. They organized a third party called the Working Men's Reform Party. They ran white and black candidates for city council. They swept to control of the city government um, and they built the city hall that they had imagined just the way they had imagined building it. And as I love to say, particularly in my kind of popular historian format, um, and there's no sign on the building that tells anyone how it came. And there isn't even on the damn Wikipedia page for the building, which is all about the architect, says nothing about how the building actually came uh, to be built. When I visited Richmond for the first time doing my research and I went to see the building and I saw that every corner of the roof and they had designed a building that had like 12 corners the way they had laid out the roof. There was a gargoyle on every corner. And I thought the workers who got to carve those gargoyles got their job because of the labor movement. And nobody knows that. So that story was suppressed. Four years later, there is a, a pushback on the part of the leaders of both the Democratic and the Republican parties to pull this working class coalition apart. And they get this idea that one of the ways to do that is to build this great monument to Robert E. Lee, bring the white workers back into the fold, demonize the black workers and begin the myth of the lost cause. They build the monument, 60 feet high, it's a monstrosity, um, and, and they have that impact. Now, in the wake of the murder of George Floyd and the uprising that's occurred across the United States, here in the Twin Cities, of course, very much so also in Richmond, um, people have called for the taking down of Confederate monuments and others. Here, the, the statue of Christopher Columbus uh, on the grounds of the Minnesota State Capitol, uh, Chris got pulled down. Um, and so people have focused on this Robert E. Lee monument. But no one knew the story that the monument was built to hide the story of the building of the city hall. And I, I was thrilled that um, Chelsea Higgs Wells, I think her name is, at Race Capital, the, the radio show in Richmond that Chelsea reached out to me. We were able to reach some people in Richmond with the story. 
the monument is still there. Um, but now the major reason people are talking about taking it down is that it's so covered with political graffiti that it's actually become a monument to the uprising uh, rather than a monument to General Robert E. Lee. Um, so last point about it. I, I wrote this article. I shopped it to the New York Times, to the Washington Post, to the Richmond Times-Dispatch. This was an article about how the monuments suppressed history. No one at those three newspapers even responded to my submission so that my article about the suppression of history was itself suppressed. Uh, fortunately, um, Yohuro Williams, who's a great historian um, based here at the University of St. Thomas, Yohuro had a relationship with the Progressive Magazine in Madison. The Progressive offered me a platform for it. Uh, this was the magazine that, that Robert LaFollette founded uh, in the Progressive era. I was honored uh, to, to be in their fold. Um, and that's where the article ended up. Um, so, but I think yeah. most Richmond school children who walk by that city hall every day, see those gargoyles every day, have no idea how that building came to be built. So, so I've heard other interviews with you shopping around this essay. What narrative are they trying to push then? Like what is the narrative that is in fashion if the narrative of interracial solidarity and class consciousness does not want to be told, what's the what's what is the narrative that um, there that you would? Well, I, I certainly think that you know in, we people like you and me and people listening probably are are wrestling with in the wake of the four years of the Trump presidency is the dominant narrative that the white working class in the United States is hopelessly racist. Uh, hopelessly misogynist, uh, that, that they are desperately clawing to hang on uh, to the privilege that they have had. Um, that's a dominant narrative that um, much of the media and many politicians are deeply invested in, whether they are trying to court the votes um, of that white working class or whether they are trying uh, to turn to recruit voters against that image of the white working class. But that's the dominant image right now in 2021. It reminds me of how the Northern industrialists also saw that their alliance with the former Confederate landed slaveholders, mm -hmm. that alliance was actually stronger than, you know, working with the white working class in their actual factories and manufacturing because they were starting to ask for higher wages and things like that. So it, right. it's almost this way that you have this runaway shop of asset stripping. It could be asset stripping topsoil to uh, plant tobacco. It could be asset stripping your labor population by not reinvesting in them. Mm -hmm. It could be asset stripping your Hormel plant by not reinvesting in it, but by sending it abroad and bringing it all the way back over, which is cheaper than actually paying your workers a proper salary and to get a piece of the actual ownership of the, the product of their labor. And, and I just see this cycle repeating again and again sure. and get us fight against each other uh, for the, the scraps. Sure. I mean, look at the amount of political discourse about China 
how evil China is, what a threat China is to the American economy. When is the last time you saw a list in the New York Times or the Washington Post or on National Public Radio or on the PBS NewsHour, a list of who are the American-owned corporations who are manufacturing their products in China? Um, you know, we had a great window around Governor Walker in Wisconsin and, and, and his attempt to bring a Foxconn uh, plant to Wisconsin, which ultimately fell apart. Um, but we have no idea um, how much American corporations, American capital is invested in China or in Vietnam or, or other places where workers are unable to organize. Something we need to get to the bottom of. Definitely. Uh, so I want to talk about this amazing project, the Eastside Freedom Library, that you've uh, helped build and develop with so many others. And uh, you were one of the co-founders, I believe, and uh, you're now the co-executive uh, director. Mm -hmm. And so what is it and how did it come together? And, you know, what, what are, have you been doing and what are you planning uh, going forward? Right. So this was a project that my partner, Beth Cleary, who uh, teaches theater at McAllister and makes theater, um, that, that Beth and I kind of began to hatch. Um, and then kind of it's developed through its own energy and dynamics and, and the involvement of lots of others. Um, we're located in a historically working class neighborhood, obviously, here in Minnesota, a neighborhood that was once Dakota land, and there are Dakota people still in this neighborhood and very much a part of our present and of our imagining of our future. Um, but immigrants began to come to this neighborhood in the 1840s and 50s, mostly from Sweden, Germany, and Ireland. Um, and this became a thriving blue collar industrial neighborhood uh, that was then devastated in the 1980s and 90s by neoliberalism, uh, capital flight, 15,000 unionized blue collar jobs uh, were extracted from this neighborhood. Um, and uh, the descendants of European immigrants began to move out. New immigrants from Southeast Asia, East Africa and Central America uh, began to move in. We live in this neighborhood and we were concerned about developing a project that would create a container, that would build bridges, and that would provide resources um, so that the kind of thing that had happened in Richmond, Virginia in 1886 could, could happen here. So that working class solidarity could be rebuilt. Um, this was a neighborhood that the more it was damaged by deindustrialization and it and became fragmented as new, new groups moved in. It became under-resourced by the city, under-resourced by the state. Um, the major means of employment now in the neighborhood are personal care assistants who wonderfully have recently been organized by SEIU Healthcare Minnesota and just won a contract giving them a $15 an hour minimum wage a really great breakthrough for mostly an immigrant workforce. Um, we wanted to, well, back in the day, somebody once, once said, we joked about 
a comrade who drove a Mercedes Benz and, and, and someone said, well, you know, he believes nothing's too good for the working class. And, um, and that wasn't meant kindly, but I would say we think nothing's too good for the working class. Um, we, have the, we had the opportunity to uh, make a deal with the city government uh, to lease um, a historic Carnegie Library building. Having gone to graduate school in Pittsburgh where Andrew Carnegie was the guy that labor historians most hated, it's, it's really sweet for me to, to be in control of a Carnegie building and hope that he's turning over in his grave. I did a little um, piece on the homestead strike actually with Mike Elk. So I, I was down there and was able to go around and into the, you know, Carnegie Mellon. And of course, Mellon was also a Mellon also. Terrible yeah. person. And, and we went to the Frick Museum as well. Right. Was, uh, right. The Union Boston uh, henchman. Absolutely. Um, so we were able to lease this building and um, and I had watched over the years uh, colleagues retire and downsize and not know what to do with their books. Um, and so we, we started put out a call um, to retiring historians, uh, to the children of passed on uh, historians and organizers. Uh, we made the decision that we would shelve the books in the collections in which they were given um, so that people could see uh, how David Montgomery thought by the books that David had collected. Um, David's widow, who has also passed on, Marty, uh, but, but Marty sent us David's books. Uh, we have Fred Ho's books. Fred was a brilliant, principled uh, Chinese-American jazz musician, political activist, had been a member of the Black Panthers. Uh, we have Fred's books. They are the most amazing uh, collection of books. Um, we have about 18 collections. We now have about 25,000 books. Uh, they've been cataloged by volunteers. Um, our, our catalog is searchable uh, through our website. We participate in interlibrary loan programs because we got some pretty special stuff that lots of other libraries don't have. Um, we're not able to do much with the books these days. Um, there used to be, and there will be again, um, high school classes, college classes, uh, coming in and using the materials. Um, we've helped uh, to create a new local institution called the New Brookwood Labor College, which is modeled on the Brookwood Labor College of the late 20s and 30s, um, whose motto is to educate workers into the working class. Uh, rather than educating them either to get out of the working class or to become a union bureaucrat. Um, this is to, to educate them into struggle and leadership. Um, and then we do a ton of programming. Um, recently, and again, obviously because we have to operate in, in this world of online programming due to the pandemic, um, we recently had a program with uh, Steve Greenhouse and his book, uh, Beaten Down, Worked Up, The Past, Present, and Future of American Labor. And we recruited three local labor activists, uh, Javier Murillo, who had been president of SEIU Local 26, the, the local justice for janitors local, Shireen Horzuk, who's president of AFSME Local 3800 at the University of Minnesota, and Erica Schatzlein, who was vice president 
of the St. Paul Federation of Educators. They read Steve's book and they engaged in a pretty intense conversation uh, with Steve about his book. Um, we're trying to do this with other books. Um, we're we're going to have a conversation with Dave Rodiger um, and his new book, The Sinking Middle Class, uh, on February 11. Uh, we're co-sponsoring a conversation between Joe Trotter and Will Jones, two of the country's leading African-American labor historians, uh, who will be talking about the role of Black labor in the building of America on, on February 10. Um, so we're trying to maintain um, or what, more than maintain, we like to say that we're not only a place where knowledge can be accessed, but we're a place where knowledge gets produced. And, and I think that Dave Montgomery especially uh, taught me, taught all of us that in the labor movement, in workplaces, in union halls, in taverns, in all kinds of spaces inhabited by working people. Knowledge gets produced. And, and we want to find that knowledge, give it a platform, share it with other people, and encourage the people who are hearing it or watching that they too are producers of knowledge and that they can contribute uh, to what we know. So maybe it sounds a little utopian, but um, it's pretty amazing uh, to be part of it. And I, I love reading about just the multiculturalism of all these different immigrant groups that are in that neighborhood. And the question of immigration and even, you know, whiteness, the idea that, you know, Irish weren't considered white, Italians weren't considered white at one time with uh, the Protestant uh, English. And uh, you tell this uh, story about how Wheat in Minnesota going to Poland is right. similar a uh, hundred years ago or 150 years ago is similar to corn going to Mexico, Mexico. during right. the 90s. And this this idea of, of immigration as people immigrate and we've been immigrating our entire species existence from from the very beginning, I think, leaving East Africa. But oftentimes people are leaving because out of necessity, not out of some pushing and and that pushing is also a pulling based on the economic organization of how we organize here is also then forces that pulling as well and right. I you just talk a little bit about that I love that well I want to say um, that one of the things that's happened so when the uprising began after the murder of George Floyd um, and we were talking earlier about dominant narratives dismissing white workers, um, there were also dominant narratives about African-Americans being hostile to Asian immigrants and Asian immigrants being hostile to African-Americans. And, and that really got played up in the, in the local media. And uh, we had been working with an individual, a Tibetan guy, um, who is a, uh, an internal organizer for SEIU Healthcare. And, um, and he had been in a working class history course that I was teaching through the library. And he started an organization called Tibetans for Black Lives. And it spread like wildfire. And um, because of the internet, that within two months, 
there were chapters of Tibetans for Black Lives in five countries that had been started by this young Tibetan guy. And, and he also was so concerned that the older generation of Tibetans had participated more in anti-Blackness than the younger generation. And rather than dismiss them as racist, or as my generation said of my parents when, when I was young and feeling my oats, don't trust anyone over 30, that instead he came to us for materials that he could translate into Tibetan and use with the older generation. So he was not writing them off, not giving up on them. There is now a Hmong for Black Lives organization here in the Twin Cities. So the possibilities, again, of this idea that if people can just tell their stories to each other and have a space where they can listen to each other, that solidarity is possible that recognition of common interests is possible, that critical thinking about who's been selling you this dominant narrative is possible. Um, And I think that a great new era um, lies, lies ahead. And we see it in the uprising, we see it in the movement for $15 an hour, we see it in the organizing of so-called essential workers. Um, there are great days ahead for the working class and the labor movement in this country. So in closing, uh, you just spoke a lot about some very optimistic dynamics that are developing in this country. And we do have a new administration and I do think we have a, a great opportunity not to sit back and mm. just let them work, but to actually continue to strengthen organization, continue to strengthen the educational pinnings that, that really bring the solidarity, solidarity together amongst us all. And what are you optimistic about in the coming days, weeks, months, and even years? Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things that we're doing is uh, we're mentoring middle and high school kids who do what are called National History Day projects. And we're struggling, frankly, right now to try to do it all by Zoom, um, where we used to be able to work with the kids on site. So a week ago, two groups of kids came to us, high school sophomores and juniors. One group, and the theme for 2021 is communications in history. So one group of kids is researching and telling the story of a woman named Ethel Payne. Ethel Payne was the first black woman in the White House press corps. And she was there as a representative of the Chicago Defender. And she took on Eisenhower over Eisenhower's refusal to incorporate an anti-Jim Crow rule in the interstate highway system. I didn't know who Ethel Payne was. These kids were teaching me. I was helping them to develop context. For instance, when we discovered that Ethel Payne's father had been a sleeping car porter 
And these kids didn't really know what that was. So, you know, there's context, but that they were drawn to her story. And, and one of the things we're trying to do right now is hook these kids up with Yamiche Alcindor and, and, and to have a conversation with her about her presence in the White House press corps right now. It's really exciting. Another group of kids, their peers, are doing a project on communications between the US military and the Chilean junta. Where do kids get these ideas from to, to dig into a subject like that? And we discovered there's some foreign relations online publication, they can find all these documents. And so again, to give them a context about Chile as the birth site of neoliberalism, um, you know, where, where the, the egg got broken in the first place in, in 1973. Um, so to have high school kids drawn to these subjects, and this is all under the radar. This is, this is where I see seeds being planted and nurtured and growing. Um, I think the future is very hopeful.